Josh just, we could just go home. Amen. He preached the message and it was great. Thank you, Josh. I guess I'll just kind of shoot from the hip. Um, I'm Chris. Um, glad you're with us this morning. <laughs> it's in my notes to explain to the people online. There's only like five people in here and it's not a big deal, but that would be lying today because you all came to church. So I was going to tell people uh, watching online that um, if you're not comfortable coming into a large room, um, maybe going over to someone's house and hanging out and watching and you can pause it and you can be like, man, this guy's an idiot. You know, all this guy's all great opportunities to do that. Okay. So let's get to the point. Uh, we're in week four of uh, a series in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts 4. Um, before we get too deep into this uh, sermon today, I just want to say that many of my points um, have been sourced from uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project and Matt Chandler, Pastor Matt Chandler in uh, Texas, and two amazing resources that I would highly uh, recommend to you. So a lot of my research is leaning on those two sources. A lot of my points come from them. I'm going to read a large portion of the majority of chapter four of Acts, okay? Uh, because it sets a pattern for us uh, to see, as followers of Jesus, uh, the kind of uh, journey or path that his church would be on as it's, as it's birthed and for the rest of history, okay? It sets a pattern, and there's some themes that uh, comes from both of these chapters that we're gonna sit with. So if you've been reading ahead, <laughs> uh, you know that the beginning of five is dodgy. <laughs> Anyone been reading ahead? Okay. All right. So I am not dodging the beginning of five today. I'm only skipping it because it takes, wait, wait, listen, listen. All right, all right, all right, all right. Come next week, all right, because we can't, I got like four and five, and I was like, I can't. We can't deal with that and four and five. So next week, we will deal with that very uncomfortable first couple of verses of chapter five. And if you've not read it, just go read it, and you'll be like, yeah, that's, yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so um, if you're joining us, um, let me give you a little refresher, okay? <laughs> Coward. <laughs> Promise, next week, we're going to get there, okay? I'm stoked about it. It's just next week. Um, let me give you a little refresh of, of where we're at in this book so it doesn't feel like you just walked into a movie 30 minutes late. Um, last week, we ended with Peter and John walking into the temple, Jewish temple, synagogue, right? And they see a lame beggar, and they say, look at me. <laughs> Basically, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And dude's healed. Okay, now the thing about this guy, 40-some years old, like been sitting at that temple, at, at that gate, at the temple for years and years and years and years. Everyone recognized him. So the problem uh, for the Pharisees and everyone in, in, the, in the presence of that was that they all saw it. That was a big problem for the leaders and the Pharisees, uh, that this miracle was clearly visible. Like, all these people saw it. Everyone sees it. And so it gathers a crowd, right? Lame guy has been, you know, sitting there for 40 some odd years. Now he's, he's leaping, he's praising God, he's walking with Peter and John and everyone's just, so obviously this crowd gathers, right? And in the, in the temple courts. And Peter preaches the second Christian sermon of all time. And I just love this. It's a lot like the first one, right? That comforts my heart, okay? Um, and basically he says, look guys, we didn't do this. All right, this is not because we're awesome that we healed this guy. Remember Jesus? 
That guy y'all killed? Well, turns out he was the Messiah. Uh, You killed the author of life. Well done. God raised him up. We saw it. And it's in faith in his name that we've healed this. This man's been healed, right? And all you guys saw that happen. Then he calls him to repent that their sins may be blotted out. A lot like the first sermon. And then we pick it up here, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read 1 through 21, then 29 through 31, because it's a big chunk. And as, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, so the temple had their own kind of police force, their own guards, okay? So this, this temp, the captain of those guys. And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. So I just think of myself when my kids are whining about everything in the universe, right? Greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming uh, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of them came to about 5,000. So I talked about this last week because I got all jacked up and got ahead of myself. So we got to get there. So it's like, here I am preaching in the sermon and everyone's having a great time and cops bust through the door like FBI agents, right? Flex cuff me, right? Start dragging me off the stage. And I'm like, so come forward if you want Jesus in your heart. And all 5,000 people are like, yeah, I want in on that, right? Bonkers, bonkers, okay. I mean, and then how frustrating would it be for the Pharisees and the leaders? I mean, think about it from their perspective. Talk about greatly annoyed, Like, we're going to put an end to this right now. 5,000 people in the door, right? So they killed the leader. They killed Jesus, the Pharisees. Think about it from their perspective for a second, right? And now all his crazy followers are claiming he rose from the dead, which is bonkers. We don't believe in that nonsense, right? And now his his followers that say he rose, now they're healing people like Jesus was healing people. I mean, talk about frustrating. Like it's an unwinnable war. And now there's like a small army of people with this dead man's brainwashed, right? It's crazy, y'all. What's happening? So on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, the Peter and John, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. This sounds a lot. This is happening here, right? Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means he has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Sounds a lot like last sermon. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, and there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astounded. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further. So, can't deny it. This is crazy. 
Let's squash this out, right? But in order that it may spread no further, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in, charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, you know, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising what God for what had happened, down to 29. So they, the guys get back to their crew, right? And together they pray this with the apostles now, back with their buddies. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's, let's pray. Spirit of God, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you speak peace to our hearts right now, God? Father, I pray that you would disarm us in this moment and in the areas that we have Uh, put up barriers in between us and you in the name of Jesus. Would you break those barriers down, God? Would you come into the interior of our hearts and minds and begin to exert and manifest the kind of love and power that we see here in the early church? Lord, we beg you that you would make us real Christians in a day that so many Christians seem to have lost their way. Have mercy on us, God. Lord, make us people of the book, Lord, make us people of power who will walk and live in that love and strength given by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. These are things that only you can do, God. So help us. In your holy name, we pray these things. Amen. So this theme, this pattern is developing now in the book of Acts in the chapter four and five. And the two things I wanna point out about this theme and pattern that we're gonna see, that number one, the disciples are doing exactly what they saw Jesus do. Not only are they teaching like he taught, right? The big deal is that they are now performing miracles like he performed miracles, right? And chapter five makes it clear, even the surrounding towns are bringing the sick to Jerusalem now because they're hearing that these guys are healing people just like that guy was who they killed. And they're thinking, man, if I can just get my brother-in-law in in the shadow of Peter, maybe he'll be healed or whatever it is, right? The second thing that I want you to see about the early church, the pattern that's emerging, because remember, let's take a step back. Remember why we're doing that. Why are we sitting with the book of Acts? Because in a day where it seems many Christians have lost their way, it makes sense to me to go back to the roots. Makes sense to me. There's two points of reference when you've lost your way. When the storm has kicked up clouds and dust, you can't see where you're going as a Christian. Two points, where you came from and where you're going. So we're sitting with where we came from. So what's the pattern that we stand on the shoulders of dudes that have followed Jesus, right? What was the characteristics? What are the things that we can point out? Okay, well, they're teaching like Jesus taught, and then they're doing the things that Jesus did. And then they begin to face the same kind of persecution that Jesus himself faced. Okay, so arrested, Peter launches into the third Christian sermon. Guess what? Sounds a whole lot like the first two. Love that, okay? I've had people say, Chris, you have basically one sermon. I was like, that's right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Peter quotes Psalm 118, right? Which Jesus 
actually quoted in his ministry, the builder, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. More than likely, Jesus quoted it to the same people. Because here they are standing in front of the chief priest who were the guys that were bullying Jesus in Matthew 21. Okay, all the sermons in the book of Acts so far have this element to it. You rejected the true king, right? God raised him, he exalted him, so now that in his name you could be saved, right? So Christianity, if, if you've been kind of looking at the sermons thinking, man, why do they gotta keep bringing that up? You killed Jesus, every sermon so far. You killed him. <laughs> like really in your face. And what I like is that Christianity has a long history of not pulling punches. I kind of like that, right? And the pattern I'm seeing in the sermons is this. Number one, he speaks the truth about the hearers. He speaks the truth about his hearers. He says, you have rejected the prince of life. You've rejected him. You killed him. You murdered him. And second, now in Jesus alone, he alone has authority to grant repentance, salvation, and forgiveness of sins. Every sermon has that in it. Every sermon we're seeing so far, right? I think we're going to get to four sermons. Every single one has that in it, right? The gospel, y'all, will always have a double-edgedness to it. I know it's not a real word. It's made it up. Have the mic. Double-edgedness to it. And what I mean is this. It's going to speak the truth about your heart, and it's going to speak the truth about God. And there are all sorts of reasons to be offended, okay? Number one, if your value as a person rests on you being right, like if you being right is paramount all the time, right, in all of your conversations, in your arguments, in your online debates, right, you being right is the most important thing about you, then this is horrible news. You're wrong. Step one. First tenet of Christianity, you're wrong. You've betrayed the prince of life. You've rejected him, crucified him, right? So already, I'm offended, right? But if you want joy and are willing to sacrifice your pride and arrogance to get to that joy, then it's amazing news. Some will hear the truth about themselves and the truth about God and say, I knew it! I knew things weren't right, Right? You know who responds like that to the gospel? Like broken people. Mark Rutland points out, you know where you could go and preach the gospel on just tons of people, just flock, prison. <laughs> prison yard tends to be a good place. You know where you preach the gospel and people get offended and leave? The pews, the church, right? Because who do you think you are to say I'm not awesome, pastor, right? You know who loves the gospel? People in prison. People whose brokenness has manifested itself in a way that can't be ignored. So when someone comes to them and says, hey man, life's messed up. You done rejected the way of life. And Jesus, who's been exalted and has power to give salvation, is offering it to you now. You know where people raise their hands for that? Prison yard. In church, people close their Bible and say, how dare you suggest that, right? Find another place. Pastor's gonna make me feel good, right? They suggest I need healing. Matt Chandler points out this. How despairing would it be, right, if the state of your heart is in shambles, 
Like if you're just ruining your marriage with your temper, you're just already saving for counseling for your kids, right? Your finances are a mess, right? You're trying to band-aid all the deep wounds in your heart with purchasing things. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. Like how despairing would it be if you're in a place of utter brokenness, wreaking havoc in your life, and God comes to you and says, you're doing great, man. Just keep it up, right? You got it. Like I couldn't worship a God like that because I know me. Come to me and just be a yes man. And, yo, you're doing great, man. And yet, so many people, y'all, would go to church, man, jump into the Christian cultural thing because it makes them feel good and, like, eat, live, pray, whatever it is, you know, dance like nobody's watching. And church just becomes this kind of catch-all cliche of powerless, meaningless phrases. No proclamation, no power of the Holy Spirit, no forgiveness of sins, and thus the church offers nothing different than the world offers. Just a bunch of rules. Here, here, just try harder. Doing great, Right? And the power of the gospel just bleeds out the side when we don't have a spine enough to say, no, your life's a mess. Where the gospel comes to me first and foremost and says is, dude, your little lustful, cowardice, selfish heart was wreaking havoc on your life. And I say, yeah, it sounds about right. It does. That's where the gospel found me. Like a little selfish, deceitful, lustful heart was just wreaking havoc on me and all my relationships. And it called me out of darkness into light, and it still does. So I got to preach the gospel to myself all the time. You know why? Because then my right head just pried up, and I'm awesome. Don't need the gospel. Now, don't need Jesus. Don't need the cross. You know what? Let's just talk about something else because it's uncomfortable, right? Sorry, I'm really jacked up today. I don't know. I've had like <laughs> two cups of coffee. I mean... <laughs> You've had a lot of coffee, too. I like that. <laughs> the truth, y'all, what is this thing about the truth setting you free? Like, what does that even mean? The truth sets you free. The truth will always, truth sets you free. Why? Because now the cat's out of the bag. You don't have to hide anymore. Right? You know, people hide in church. The best place to hide in church. You don't have to, the cat's out of the bag. The pressure is off. And now I'm able to freely receive what I can never give myself, salvation and forgiveness of sins. So there will always be those who hear the message of Christ and they will gladly jump off the throne of their life because it wasn't working out anyway, right? And invite God into the throne of their lives, right? And I think, I would argue that what we are seeing in the book of Acts is a group of people collectively and individually jumping off the throne of their hearts and inviting God into the center of the throne, right? You be in charge, Jesus. Like, you call the shots. And I'd argue when you invite Jesus to be king in your own context, whatever that means, you will begin to see and feel the kind of life described in the book of Acts. Okay? So, then there will always be those who hear the gospel and whose pride will rise up in offense and say, how dare you suggest I'm not awesome. And in anger and in offense, seek to marginalize and mock and belittle anyone that would ascribe to a faith like that. Okay, right? So, which is in part what we are seeing in the religious authorities in the book of Acts. They are offended. Actually, what we're going to read later is they are jealous, filled with jealousy, and they begin to seek to marginalize, to dismiss, to belittle, to mock to minimize people that, or beat them, <laughs> people that would ascribe to a faith like that. In fact, in chapter five, what we're gonna read in a second, man, these pastors, y'all Pharisees, pastors, religious leaders, like leaders of leaders, you know, like respected community leaders, these theologians, like, like 
you know, uh, teachers of the law are so enraged that they want to kill them. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can see me like that, but I struggle with seeing religious people so enraged out of their mind they want to kill, they want to bloodshed, right? Okay, so 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So here, we are seeing yet another cultural barrier being obliterated by the gospel. Primarily, so up until this point, if you've been with us, we've seen the gospel obliterate division based on class, right? We read that in three, right? Under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're seeing the gospel obliterate divisions based on intelligence, on IQ, and on education, these men were uneducated men. Y'all, Christianity was never meant to be carried by a few educated elite, nor do the doors of Christianity solely swing on the intellect. Okay? In fact, Paul would later say, man, I didn't come to you with eloquent words and uh, wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right? So your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. These men were not recognized by their education, by their social standing, or by their uh, cultural accolades. They were recognized because they had been with Jesus. So what does that mean for us? What can we take away from something like this? Well, number one is there's no bench warmers in the kingdom. There's no bench warmers. And that's what John Wimber says. There's bench warmers in the kingdom. Because as a Christian, now it is your proximity with Jesus not whether you have a mic, right, or you can lead worship, or you can speak Greek, or your gender, or you can play an instrument. It's your proximity with Jesus that brings meaning and purpose and fulfillment and power in your life, not your talents or your skills, your accolades. If you are a Christian, this is your faith, right, that God has given freely, not based on intelligence or IQ or anything like that, right? So obviously, y'all, I'm like, passionate about rigorous study of the word, right? I want to grow in the knowledge of God. But if we think that it's our intellect that gives us value and meaning, then we have missed the scandalous nature of God's love, right? Intimacy with Jesus is the reward, not being thought of as smart. So John Piper's going to say this, you don't have to know a lot of things in your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know a few great things that matter, perhaps just one and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. So let's just pause for a second. Let me ask you a question. What are you waiting on to start making a difference for Jesus? Like, what are you, what are you waiting on to begin to influence in your sphere towards the gospel? Most of us are waiting on a sense of qualification, primarily manifested in what? Knowledge, right? I will start talking to people about Jesus when I feel like I know a little bit more about apologetics, right? Or if I feel like I can defend the historicity of Scripture better, right? And the one thing that's noted about these men is basically they're morons. <laughs> the, word, the word common, the word common, idiotas. 
which just brings so much comfort to my heart, right? I can't, I can't tell you how many small groups, my small groups like, Chris, you made up five words on Sunday, right? Like just comforts me. There you go. There it is. There it is. Thank you. Yes. Let's not do that, though. Um, yeah. <laughs> These guys have no theological training, no rhetorical skill, and yet leave a group of kind of equivalent PhDs speechless. Speechless. <laughs> Why? What can silence the mouth of the arrogant and the wise. What can silence the mouth of those who seek to marginalize and mock Christian faith today? Those who aim to make Christianity seem silly and antiquated, what leaves them speechless? Can I just suggest to you that it's when his people stop just talking about the gospel and start exemplifying the gospel with the way they live? Can I just suggest to you, it's when his people embodify, embodify, there it was, embody and exemplify the scandalous love and power of God, not just in word, but in action, like not just in speech, but in living. It's when the love and the power of God are not just seen in proclamation, or not just heard, rather, in proclamation, but seen in demonstration that tends to leave those who are opposed to Christianity speechless tends to disarm human pride. Y'all, arguments can be defeated, huh? Assertions can be refuted, but action, in this case, miraculous or otherwise, that reflects the indiscriminate love and kindness of God are hard to refute. They're hard to argue with and tend to leave the haters with little to say. And you gotta have both. You gotta have proclamation. You gotta have demonstration. Look, we can say that God loves everyone till we're blue in the face, but it's actually going to begin to live out the implications of that love that we begin to leave awake for God's glory in our life. Conversely, no wonder the world doesn't take the church seriously when all we do is talk about love and joy and selflessness and self-sacrifice and never exhibit it in our own lives, Amen. right? See, but this was a miracle, right? And as amazing as a man being healed is, it is exactly what the book of Acts calls it, a sign. And the point of any sign is to point towards something else. So what is the miracle pointing towards? Well, it's pointing towards this. Here's this man, has zero to point to in his life as to why people should value him, why is he significant, why people should love him, nothing, crippled. Y'all, first century mind, you are crippled because God has judged you. The judgment of God has fallen on you. That's why you're blind. That's why you're sick. That's why you have leprosy. That's why you're crippled. And Peter decides to push back against that cultural thinking and says, no, you know what? God loves you too. Get up. And he manifests the love of God. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I don't know. I'm just still chewing on a couple weeks ago when we talked about how God loves everybody. And we said, oh, yeah, it's not scandalous. But yeah, it's because you hadn't thought about it. Like God loves that dude on social media you've been raging out on. Like God loves the rioters and the looters, right? God loves the corrupt police. You put it in context, you're like, dude, even politicians. <gasps> you're, gonna, you're gonna leave this church now. You, you suggest, and it's when we stop just talking about that, but exhibiting it in our lives that those haters are gonna leave us speechless. 
right? We are so selective in who we love, isn't, aren't we? So selective in who we deem. You know what, God, you're lovable. I, God loves everyone. What we're really thinking is God loves the people that I think are lovable, not the people that I just enraged at on social media and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking, are we chatting? Are we, are we tracking here? Enraged mobs, racist bigots, corrupt police, even politicians, man. It's when the people begin to walk in that love and power that haters are left speechless. It's preaching with power. It's orthodoxy with orthopraxy. Huh? It's not just talking, not just running our mouths, but it's showing. And it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. But we see another pattern emerging as well in this early church. We see how the Sadducees are responding and how many would continue to respond to Christianity throughout the pages of history, all right? Which is this, a determined disbelief, even in the face of indisputable evidence. I mean, they clearly said, we can't deny it, and then turned around to huddle, how can we deny it? How can we marginalize this? How can we dismiss this? Right? That's called determined disbelief. Here they are with undeniable evidence of the power of Christ in front of them, and they're huddling, trying to figure out how to dismiss it. Why? Well, because they have a pre-established bias, right, um, with a resolve, which the pre-established bias in their heart is going to manifest itself in a resolve to ignore, literally choose to be blind to God's love being poured out right in front of them. And I'd argue that their blindness... They're, they're seeking to marginalize and dismiss this movement that's just catching like wildfire right in front of them, revolves around this one issue, right? I am on the throne in my life, not you, God. I am king, you are not king, right? And then, just like now, people will ignore evidence right in front of their face to maintain their own sense of personal autonomy and perceived control over their lives. We don't say it, but we live it. We live this sentence, basically. Yeah, I like, I like Jesus. And I, like, I like what Jesus says. He's a cool guy. His thinking on sexuality, a little antiquated. I don't think he could ever see, like, how far we'd come, you know. I don't think he'd ever see that coming. So, I'm smarter than him in this area. No one would ever say that, right? But what we do every day when we rebel against the authority and the kingship of Jesus is basically say to his face, I am smarter than you in this area. In the area of what I talk about or think about or look at, smarter than you, right? It comes to my work ethic. No one would ever say that, but we live it over and over again. And no matter how many total catastrophes we get ourselves in, in that kind of thinking, we always seem to kind of saunter back to, I'm in charge. I'll call the shots. I know what's best for me. I got this, right? And I'd argue it's because they are determined to remain in control that they have become blind to the goodness of God on display right in front of their eyes, right? Because they would rather stay in control of things and be miserable than surrender to joy. If in that joy, they have to admit they've been wrong. Thus, for many, the saying of Milton is true, to rule in hell is better to serve, I'm sorry, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. You heard that, John Milton, Paradise Lost. Lewis would say it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, 
thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And here we see that it's the religious folk, the religious and the powerful that are refusing what God is doing right in front of them, and it is a determined disbelief. Now, chapter four and chapter five of Acts are unbelievably similar. It's almost like deja vu. It's like you're reading the same thing over again. In the middle of chapter five, because all the miracles keep happening, right? The high priests are filled with jealousy, which is an interesting parallel that the disciples are being filled, same word, filled with the Holy Spirit. High priests being filled with jealousy, right? Chapter five, they arrest them again. And this time, it's not just Peter and John. This time, they arrest all the apostles, all 12, right? They throw them in jail in the night, in the early morning, this is chapter five. This is a different occurrence, just ha- like on the heels of the other one, right? It's almost like, wait, we're just talking about the same thing. No, different, different scenario, right? In the early morning, an angel comes and busts them out of jail and basically says, go preach more, right? So morning comes around. High priest got his like, you know, whatever, soy latte rolling into work. They get in there. The council gathers. They say, hey, go get the apostles. Let's bring them and let's, you know, give them, give them a talking to, right? <laughs> and, and the guards go to get them. And the guards come back and they're like, the door's locked, no one's there. And right about then someone runs in. They're like, hey, those guys you just arrested last night, they're back in the temple. Like, where are you arrested? And they're preaching again, right? <laughs> so I, I, I think Luke definitely feels that sense of like irony and, and humor. So 526, it says, I love this. The guards go and get them in 26. And it says that they brought them, though not by force this time. So in other words, the guards go to them and they're like, hey guys, uh, you want to come with us maybe back to the, because they're afraid of the people. They're like, this is crazy. What's happening? So the apostles are like, okay, we'll go back. Sure. They come back and talk to them. And the leaders basically say, hey, look, it's like deja vu. We told you to quit talking about this. You're trying to blame Jesus' death on us. And Peter echoes exactly what he said last time. We're going to obey God, not men. Gave him the sermon. You guys killed Jesus, rose from the dead, forgiveness of sins, repentance, blah, blah, blah. And it says that they are enraged. The word you might have in your Bible, cut to the quick, right? It means literally to be sawn in two mentally. <laughs> These guys are ripped apart. It says rent with vexation. They're losing their minds in anger and rage. Just like, you know, when you're driving, right? Someone cuts you off and your eyes, road, right? Just lost their minds. And so really interesting thing happens. And I want to read it to you because it's just so, I love things like this in the Bible, because if you were just making up this story, you would never include stuff like this. Okay. So if you have your Bibles, it's five, it's going to come up here. It should 534. Maybe it's going to come up here. I don't know. I don't know if I have it. Um, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up. I'm in 34 stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up, and in the days of the census, drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles back in, they beat them, which I love. They're like, man, you're so right, dude. You know what? Beat them anyway. <laughs> they call them back in. They beat them. Said, quit talking about this, and then let them go, 41. Then they left, they being the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ, that the Christ is Jesus so, so, what? so let's sit with this for a second, right? The, the leader says, let time be our ally as to whether or not we will condemn these men. Or rather, he says, don't condemn them, right? Let, let two months, six months, a year go by. And if it's of the Lord then we'd be a fool to oppose it. But if it's of man, it'll fizzle out. I find a lot of comfort in this, especially in a culture in a day and age where it seems like everyone is rallying someone to a cause of condemnation. I find a lot of comfort being Christian. I don't know how long I've been, 15 years, something like that. I find a lot of comfort in when suspicious things come up that I don't know what I think about, maybe even especially in Christian communities, right? I find a lot of comfort in not throwing my condemnation on it immediately and saying, you know what? Let's give them a year. Let's give them two years. Let's just see how it plays out. So I, I, I love this idea of letting time kind of be your ally when it comes to assessing legitimacy of things or not, instead of rushing in with condemnation. And that's what we see with these guys, but I just, I giggle at the fact, they're like, yeah, but beat them anyway. <laughs> and then send them on their way. The last thing I want to consider is this. So I just, I just wanted to kind of point that out because to me, if you're making up a story about good guys and bad guys, you wouldn't include this bit, right? The Pharisees are the bad guys. And yet here's this Pharisee who has this amazing moment of wisdom who stands up and, and leads this group towards wisdom. Okay, so last thing I want to consider before we get out of here is this. All throughout history, okay, in our day, as well as, as their day, there will be those who oppose Christianity, okay? Now, you don't have to look very far in history to see that, okay? There will be those, then and now, who will seek to marginalize, to mock, right? To make look ridiculous, maybe even silence it, Right? Just can, you're an idiot if you believe stuff like all these antiquated ideas about Jesus and morality and gender. You, just, you guys are just, you know, just, oh, you know? No one's ever heard that? Come on. Throughout history, Christians have responded in several ways to this pressure. Okay? One way that people respond to the marginalization and the mocking and the belittling of the Christian faith is to feel embarrassed. Now, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you've probably felt this. Embarrassed for your poor idiot pastor? <laughs> or, let's be more specific, embarrassed about biblical teachings that to you seem difficult to understand and are in clear opposition to the current 
fiber of the day, okay? When we do that, what we do is we try to distance ourselves from maybe some biblical beliefs or even the church itself because we feel embarrassed or ashamed, right? So I still love Jesus. You know, again, I just don't think he'd ever see where we are today. So I think we're just a little bit smarter than him here now, you know, sexuality and, you know, clearly he's a little misinformed, you know. But the thing is, the more you try to do that, the more you realize that it's Jesus himself that's the problem. Like he's the thing that offends. And then you have to do away with the atonement, right? I mean, you gotta dismiss the cross. You gotta minimize it. You gotta minimize sin. And then being a Christian is really just about being kind and ethical and moral. And the church has nothing to offer anyone, right? Right? No, nothing any different than any other religion. Just try harder. No gospel proclamation. No Holy Spirit demonstration. No real power to transform. Because why? Well, you were already great. Sin, eh, you know, just be sweet to everyone, Right? And the root, what's the root of that? Like, where does that journey start? Well, I'd argue it starts in high school, basically, where you're more afraid of the people around you than you are of God. Like, the root of that journey comes from I care so much about what people think about me. And look, look, man, wanting, nothing nothing wrong with wanting to be, I want to be liked, okay? I want to be liked. I want people to like me, okay? No one wants to be that like religious wacko on the TV that's like making a fool of himself, right? Nothing wrong, y'all, with wanting to be liked unless it makes you sell out. Like unless it causes you to be a spineless person who kowtows to people if they'll just applaud you. Right? Nothing wrong with wanting to be liked, man, unless it causes you to sell out, right? Proverbs would say, the fear of man is a snare. God's saying, it's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap, right? When we live our lives dictated by the opinions of others, like when we live our lives terrified by what other people think of us, Matt Chandler says, it's like being terrified of a kitty and walking up to a lion and slapping it in the face. He says, anyone who is terrified of a house cat and yet will slap a lion in the face is a fool, right? More than that, who you fear most is your God, right? And so the path that Christians have taken throughout history when they become ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of biblical teaching, is they're basically just trying to make Jesus sexy. Give Jesus a little Botox. Like, make him trendy, right? And thus the church becomes something else entirely. So, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church, what we see is a ferocious boldness to not only proclaim the gospel, but to demonstrate the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in the face of social rejection, even in the face of beatings, and next week, even in the face of murder, bloodshed in the streets, right? It says, y'all, they rejoiced. They got beaten. (laughs) They got beaten and left rejoicing. Like, what kind of value system is this? Like, when we talk about being transformed, like our mission, like be a people growing in Christ like this, we're not thinking about broken bones and bruises. And yet, they leave here rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Like, what kind? I'll tell you what kind. It's a value system that sees Jesus as the most beautiful and treasured thing in the universe. And if I'm going to look like him, if looking like him involves getting beaten, I'm going to rejoice. That, like I just say, that just boggles my mind. 
Like, you know, <laughs> you're at a party. Like, well, I'm a pastor, right? So you're at a party and like someone's like, you know, hey, what do you do for work? And this guy's like, well, I'm in the FBI. And they're like, oh, really? Shut up. Tell me, tell me, did you kill anyone? Like, have you, do you know any, you know? And then they're like, you know, Chris, what do you do? I'm a pastor. They're like, all right, well, we'll grab a drink, you know? Like, there is that impulse that we just want to be like, we want to be cool, right? But when we do that, like, that's like the value system, right? But when we forfeit that boldness in the Holy Spirit, then we can't experience this kind of rejoicing even in the midst of suffering and beatings. This is bonkers for us. Think of all the things that your joy is resting on. My coffee's cold. <laughs> Think of all the things that your joy is resting on in your life. And here are these dudes beating black and blue, walking out, rejoicing. What kind of power is this, right? It's a power that just boggles my mind. It's a power that I struggle with as a pastor to comprehend and walk in, right? If we follow Jesus, the man who was mercilessly beaten and killed himself, he said, if they persecute me, they're going to come after you too, and they rejoice. And I'll tell you why, if I was amongst them, why I would be rejoicing is because that moment would represent for me a death of my desire to be popular. It would represent for me the death of an idol that bows down to the applause of men. And I would find reason to rejoice in that. What we see in Acts is the Holy Spirit being poured out and giving confidence and strength. Remember, Peter, prior, denied the name of Jesus, now being beaten for the name of Jesus and rejoicing. Only the Holy Spirit can do stuff like that in our hearts and lives. Let's stand and pray. Many people um, like to point out from the book of Acts that uh, tongues, right? Is the, is the, are you getting anyone who heard that you grew up in church? You guys ever hear like, well, if you know you have the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Anyone? Is that, anyone hear that? Yeah. So a lot of people like to point to that. And yet here, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit again, it says they preach the gospel with boldness. So I'd like to argue that one of the primary fruits of the Holy Spirit, boldness. Right? Let's pray.